Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. We have Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard as our guest today with Renee Hatcher. Uh, Dr. Nimhard is the professor of community justice and social economic development at John Jay College in New York. And Renee Hatcher is a co-op lawyer in Chicago, but she used to be in Baltimore, right, right here in the area. Jessica and Renee, as of last night, New York Times says there's 42 million people have already voted. And if you look at the number of people that voted in 2016 president election, there was 138 million. So about 30 percent have already voted. And we have 12 more days to go before the election. Jessica, last week I asked a lady that was on the show, why is it that there's so many long lines, particularly in Georgia and Texas. And I would like to know, I would like for you to answer that for me, Jessica. What's your view on why there are so many long lines? <laughs> well, it's clear to me that it's a voter suppression, and I'm sorry to laugh, but I'm laughing because to me it's so obvious uh, a power play, right? You know, voting is so important because, it, you know, for better or for worse, that's technically the way that we choose our leadership, right? If you keep people from voting or make them so frustrated and tired, or if you make it so impossible, like either they have to choose between going to work or standing online for five hours, then you reduce how many people vote. And of course, the people who are going to be more frustrated and people who the consequences of standing online or whatever are harsher are the people who already have harsher lives, harsher consequences, right? They're workers, working people people of color, mothers, right? So all the people that the consequences of having to wait or try to vote, making voting harder, right, are the people that you frustrate and make it harder to vote, then that's less of them and more of your people who keep you in power who vote. So I do think it's unfortunately part of the stranglehold that our our capitalist political economy has, our racist capitalist political economy has on our society, and it shows up even in what we think is the most simple aspect of democracy, right? Voting for president. Racist, capitalistic society. Okay, you went there yeah. real quick. That's my That's view, my too. View. <laughs> I'd say amen. <laughs> amen. Renee, you have anything that you want to add to that, Miss Lawyer? Yeah, and I think, you know, as Jessica said, it speaks to the erosion of the kind of democracy that we have. I mean, one of the things that's definitely causing some of the long lines is also the erosion of the Voting Rights Act. And so the Supreme Court struck down a couple of years ago preclearance, which basically means that these states that were shown to um, discriminate against black voters in particular no longer had to get pre-approval to change their uh, voting structures or where they, how many poll polling places they had or 
just basically their logistical plans around voting. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen as soon as preclearance was struck down is that a lot of southern states started to get rid of uh, polling places, um, use different tactics that have been used in the past. And, you know, thinking about um, new ways really to to frustrate voters, to um, sow disinformation. And so that's in part why we're seeing, I think, the long wait in places in the South, primarily in black communities. And, you know, as, as Jessica said, it speaks more broadly, I think, to you know, the way in which we live in a racist, capitalist society. Um, we've seen so many different aspects of the, the limited democracy, this idea that we just go vote every few years for certain positions, right? This representative democracy, like we see even that being eroded and the way in which money is in politics, but at a basic level, how power functions. How power functions. Yep, how power functions. So those people in power want to stay in power and they want to keep people out of power. And those people normally are the ones that have money. When you talk about colonization or decolonization with one of the the names of the program that you two ladies uh, sort of chaired, in the Capital Impact, and they had over 900 people at the Capital Impact last week, which was higher, I think, than most they've ever had in person was 300. So one of the good things about COVID, if there's such a thing as a good thing, is that people have gotten, we've gotten used to Zoom, and more and more people can get involved. Throughout history, Jessica, how, how has folks kept power and keep black, brown, women, native folks out of power? Um, I'm, I'm sighing because it's such a sad story, right, uh, about the way that, you know, racism and uh, economic oppression have woven together, right? And pretty much, who was it? I was talking to someone the other day, and we were talking about how, you know, I, I try to make the point, and I'm going to weave cooperatives in quickly and then go back to your answer. But I, I, I always try to make the point that cooperation is really a human thing and that through all eras, epochs of history in every human population, we use economic cooperation. We have for survival. We have for prosperity. We do it, you know, for centuries. And so I can't remember who I was talking to, but we were saying, you know, it's really capitalism and economic exploitation that are new, right, that have turned cooperation on the head. It's not that cooperation is so new. So the first thing is, I think, the fact that, you know, and this is a whole history lesson, but, you know, from industrialization and colonization, starting with the Portuguese and then moving to the Spanish and then to the British, with a lot of other European groups in between, we had a new form of relating to each other. One is, right, that every, the person who has the capital, who can steal it, amass it, whatever, has the power and can do whatever they want. And then on top of that, we put this enslavement, enslavement of people of African descent so that you could technically, you know, see, physically see who the enslaved people were if you look at phenotypes. And so this notion that we know who's at the bottom so that we can perpetuate a hierarchy of oppression and this notion that, you know, white Europeans are at the top and own all the capital and run everything kind of has permeated for the last 500 years. And that means that we have a system, especially in the U.S., who helped to perpetuate and held on to all those systems longer, right? 
we have a situation where even in co-ops, which feel like we're, you know, everyone belongs, we're, you know, the best thing since apple pie for human relations, right? But we even suffer because this system is so insidious. We even suffer in the co-op movement because we don't, we can't see it. We don't understand how much uh, the racism and economic oppression have permeated everything we do and how we think and how we act. I don't know if that really answers your question. I'm trying to keep it into that one and a half minute soundbite. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I have it. And Renee, I'd like you to speak to this, particularly that, that, over time through through years and you just mentioned the Portuguese and the Spanish and your all these European folk, they've created democracies, but they would say that you know, like all men are created equal, but the, the men they were talking about were white men and then they even defined it more of white men with that own land. So they would only talk about people that have wealth as those that are created equal and those were the ones that could vote and everybody else couldn't vote. How how does that fit for you, Renee, and what you understand this history is? Yeah, no, power. I mean, I think that rings true, right? And we see the vestiges of that. Going back to your first question about democracy and voting, we see the vestiges of that today in terms of there's a whole group of people who have some power who are trying to stop others from even meaningfully participate in the vote. Um, and so that that is well aligned right, with the history of this country in terms of who could vote and who actually had the franchise or once black folks, once women had the franchise, even how they were, um, how they were undermined to vote. I mean, we see that in Florida right now, for example, uh, when you, you know, you think by the most democratic process that the people of Florida decided that those folks who had even previous criminal records could actually have access to the vote afterwards. And then we see ways in which the state legislature, the Republican state legislature, quickly passed legislation to ensure that so many of those people couldn't if they had different fines or fees that they still owed to the state. So it's just another a way in which to undermine people's access to, to the vote. And, and what it's really about, I think, in terms of in thinking about both the historical context and today, I think what it's really about is like limiting who has agency, who has a say in how their lives are governed, how their communities are developed, like what conditions they have to live by and work by. And I mean, I think that's in part why the co-op movement in this moment is so important, in part because cooperators you know, cooperatives really is a place in which people can meaningfully participate in democratic practice. And in part, I think that that has so much potential really to expand into, you know, our our more broad civic life, our political life, and ways in which we need to think about democratizing not only the economy, but also thinking about uh, really developing a, a deeper level of democratic practice in in our political and and social lives. Yeah, the other thing that co-ops help us do is that transparency and equal information, right? Sharing of, you know, valuing education information and transparency. So it reduces confusion, it reduces misinformation, miseducation. You know, right now in the U.S., we're right heavy in the middle of total miscommunication, miseducation, misinformation, disinformation. 
But, you know, co-ops really for them to work democratically also need people to have the same information and to communicate well and to use information to make good decisions. And I I think for those of us who are in the co-op movement, we try to expect that in the rest of our world. And so we, you know, start to demand it, hopefully. Um, Right now, we're not doing too well in demanding transparency and information. But I think that's the other hope, right, for co-ops. So not only do we get to practice real democracy, especially about economics, but we also get to practice it in a way that means we communicate well, share information, reduce confusion. And I think that's important in this world right now. I think it's very important. And you you just bring up the point of the values of co-ops. That's what it, it pointed to me, what you just said, Jessica, and that is, now, I like the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and it says caring for others. I say caring for one another, the golden rule, that if we, if we are doing those things, if we're honest and we're transparent or open and we're concerned about the society, uh, communities we're living in, and we're caring for each other, then that's like that's the perfect world, and that causes this disinformation to not be there. So that's, that's one of the reasons I really like co-ops. Plus the fifth principle, which is education, training, and information, is that to get people trained up and educated about all these different things. We're going to take our first break. We'll be right back, everybody. News Talk Station. Information is power. That's why WL is a great, great partner. Um, we are here today. Dr. Jessica Gernimhard and Renee Hatcher are here to give you information about co-ops. We've been talking about racism in this capitalistic society, how it got developed, the history of it all, and we haven't talked about, though, white privilege. So, Jessica, how do white privilege happen and what is it? So, you know, white privilege is the extension of this construction of race that I tried to hint at earlier, meaning as industrialization and capitalist system were developing, they also started to use enslavement, slave labor, They focused that slave labor on African people of African descent and brought them all around the world to oppress them and then realized that, you know, creating racial difference and uh, African inferiority was a way for them to keep control over the labor force and keep the labor force divided between different people. And so the racism got woven into the economic system and then perpetuated, right, we involved science to, to try to pretend that there was a genetic and biological Different. basis to race so that we could justify the racism, et cetera. And at the same time that we created this whole superficial racist system, we also tried to justify it, right, by making it seem natural and normal, and so the normalization was to normalize the hierarchy, right, that, that whites are higher on the scale of humanness than black and brown people. 
and that whites deserved what they got because we were the ones, they were the ones who were civilized and we blacks were the ones who needed civilization, right? And so that meant that sort of all our systems were based on that notion, but over centuries, right, it became so normalized that whites, even some blacks, kind of accepted that those relationships. And for white America, when we talk about white privilege, all the things that white people can do, um, Peggy McIntosh, I like to use her notion of an invisible backpack of things. And she, you know, she talks about the simple things like, you know, walking in a store and not being followed to the more intangible things of being able to get a loan at a bank or live wherever you want to, to the even more intangible things like being able to criticize your own society and not being stereotyped or denigrated when you do it. Um, and so, you know, I like that notion of the invisible backpack because it helps us see sort of how normally we accept the fact that we all have stereotypes, right? Where whites are the saviors and blacks are the, the bad guys. And black behavior is always something wrong with it and white behavior is always proper. And so that's what, when I talk about white privilege, and then I try to talk about it in co-ops, right, that we still, as, as great a model of co-op, of democracy and equality that co-ops try to be, when you put a co-op into a racist society, racism doesn't get erased immediately. You have to deliberately address, let people see their white privilege and address racism, and then deliberately try to do things to decolonize, to de-race the co-op. You know, you maybe Renee. You, you said a lot, and I want to. I want to ask Renee that if she want to add anything to that, so we're right in the same place. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think the only thing I would add to that is just maybe kind of the ways that we don't see this comes up, right? So, so for example, just in the co-op movement, thinking about the narrative that gets told, or for example, the uh, case studies that get elevated and and shared. Um, thinking about the approach to cooperative development, thinking about the cultural context. And, you know, I, I know for me, when I first got into this work, I, Black folks were missing from that. Like, Indigenous folks were missing from that. Even Latinx folks were missing from that. Even though we have these rich histories of cooperative practice and cooperation, and, you know, one of the things, and that's, I think, one of the reasons for me and I think so many others why Jessica's book, Collective Courage, was so important was because it was the first time that we had something that talked about where our histories and where our ancestors were in the cooperative movement, what that looked like, how they practiced cooperation, and what conditions. I mean, the beautiful stories that Jessica tells in that book and so much like helped us reclaim so much of that and bring that forward to, you know, cooperative development that's happening in black communities today. Um, so I think part of it too, when we talk about decolonizing co-ops or just decolonizing the movement, really what we're saying is that we have to rethink all the things that we've been told. Uh, we have to rethink and reshape and focus on histories of oppressed communities, of black communities, of indigenous communities, of Latinx communities, and really highlight their stories and center them in some of how so much of this work gets shaped. And that is everything from technical assistance, again, to how we see the approach to cooperative development and, like, for what reason. 
So, you know, I think Jessica's book has done so much, I think, for a lot of us working in black communities around cooperation. I totally agree with that one. And Jessica, thank you for that 15-year of research to put that book together. It has helped a lot. Renee, I want to ask you a question that's personal, but how old are you and when did you learn about co-ops? And the reason reason I say that, reason I'm saying that, listen to me first, the reason I'm asking you that is... For I know. the first time in my life, someone guessed that I was older than I'm actually am just yesterday. Uh, oh. But, you know, co- cooperation, I think, has, you know, been in my life as it, I think it, it's in so many of our lives, really, from, from day one, right? We practice mutual aid. We practice cooperation with our families, with our close friends. Um, but I really got into kind of thinking about the cooperative movement and specifically in the context of the Black community, probably about seven or eight years ago, um, as a result of doing, I mean, I've been a community development lawyer for my entire professional career, and I was working with a lot of um, Black, you know, sole owner, business owners to to really help create opportunities on the south side of Chicago, on the west side of Chicago, in Gary, Indiana, where I'm from. And, you know, I took some time just in reflecting upon that work about the limitations of it, about the idea that if my clients were successful, how that didn't necessarily translate to a larger impact for the communities that they were in, for the black community overall, and and thinking about the need for collective action as it relates to the um, economic development and thinking about the need for agency and really thinking about like, giving people the tools and being able to have just regular folk have control over what their neighborhoods look like. So really for me, it was like coming to it from a, really um, knowing the, the importance of self-determination and seeing, it, you know, in my experience growing up in Gary, Indiana, the ways in which the status quo and economic development can really cause a whole host of harm, particularly to black communities, particularly to oppressed communities in this country. And so thinking about cooperative de- development, right, as a, um, as a strategy really to give people agency over their lives to, you know, people who are being exploited at work being able to own their own labor, being able to benefit from their labor. So I work a lot with worker co-op. Um, but then again, as I mentioned, you know, when uh, Jessica's book uh, came out in 2014, I had already read some of the articles that she wrote about cooperative de- development and urban development. Um, but the book really just knowing those stories uh, was just a completely different type of um impact, at least on me. So knowing the story of the uh, consumer cooperative trading company that started in Gary in the wake of the Depression and really digging deep into, right, um, the work that they were doing, not only to develop these co-ops, which was amazing within itself, but also to think about the uh, broader issues of Black folks in Gary at that time and developing, you know, developing a community strategy that was really rooted in the needs of Black people in Gary at the time is, is really my entry point. And then being able to work in Black communities and Latinx communities and communities, oppressed communities to do cooperative development. I mean, I've learned so much, probably, certainly more so, probably I've learned more from my clients than they have ever learned from me um, in terms of what's possible. The reason I ask you the question, though, is that I just turned 73 two weeks ago. 
And I didn't find out about co-ops until I was about 45 years old. And you were much younger than that. I don't think you even made 30 yet. So you've learned about it much earlier. And that's the whole point. I'm glad that you've learned it so you have a much longer part of your life that you can be out here really telling people about it and perhaps other younger people to get them to know the benefits of co-ops, perhaps to start more co-ops, to learn about co-ops, to, to either live in a co-op or do work, you know, uh, do the banking with a credit union or go to REI, go to a food co-op, uh, find out about mutual aid societies and get your insurance that there's all of these ways of building up community, which you've talked about. And we're going to take our next break <laughs> and then we'll be right back. Cause I really want to ask the question when we get back, what would you tell young people? I've a couple, a very young couple. They were 27 years old. Say they're not voting cause they don't like either of the candidates. What would you tell them? We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. everybody this is Vernon Oaks and the program is Everything Cooperative and we have Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard Professor of Community Justice and Social Economic Development at John Jay College in New York and Renee Hatcher who is a co-op lawyer in Chicago grew up in Gary Indiana and has done some work in Baltimore the two of them hosted a, a workshop called Decolonization the U.S. Co-op Movement Lessons Learned from the African American Cooperative Experience last week at Capital Impact. So I would like to know what were some of the lessons learned, this, this history of this uh, colonization and decolonization in the co-op movement. What is that about and what are some of the lessons learned? You want to start off, Jessica? Yeah. So, you know, I do my part about talking about the history and actually Renee already did a great job of doing that, but you know, I run down a list of things that I learned from the research I did on black co-ops. And, you know, one of the first things I learned, and I don't always put it this way, but because we're talking about, you know, racism and that kind of thing, is the importance of agency and self-determination in the black co-op movement, right? That a lot of times African-Americans were forced to do things segregated, but also sometimes chose self-segregation in order to have uh, self-determination and control over their own co-ops. So there's an interesting sort of lesson learned there in terms of um, agency and control and how even in a racist society to be con in control of your own economic institution, right? And part of that is by studying together. Part of it is forming co-ops with other like-minded and people in similar situations and realizing that alternative economics, the co-op structure, is a better way to address all the ills that are happening, right? The discrimination, the marginalization, the poverty that the mainstream system is putting you through. If you can join together with other like people in that same situation and then work, work with them in a, a new structure that provides more, transparency and democracy to everybody, then that makes a difference. 
So then the importance of education and studying together, learning together, learning from each other, that comes out throughout the whole history of black co-ops. In fact, almost every example I found started with people coming together and studying together. Also the importance of organizing and organizations getting the word out, having organizations that help you get the word out, organizations that help you do the education and the studying together, and then organizations that, that do the development that you can connect with. And again, whether they're self-determined organizations within the black community or connecting to other mainstream organizations to get as much out of them as you can. Then there's the significance of community support. So all the co-ops, again, all the co-op activity, all the mutual aid work depended on um, community, meaning a sense of solidarity in community, but also literally community support for the economic enterprise. So even the members of the community who might not be members of the co-op or the mutual aid group still understood what that group was doing, why it was there, and that it was necessary and needed to be supported in the society. And the support was also important because so many of the black co-ops suffered sabotage from white competitors and sabotage from a white supremacist terrorism. And so community support also was, was fundamental in helping to keep some of those co-ops alive or resurgent after they were sabotaged. Um, and then the last few things are more general about co-ops, the pooling of resources and then being able to leverage them. Also really important for marginalized and discriminated against groups to figure out ways to kind of pull out of the mainstream capital system and create their own resources and leverage them. The importance of democratic participation and, and trust, internal solidarity. And then the other things for blacks that seem to be more important than even and the other co-ops was the role of black women and participation of youth. Again, throughout the history, the strength of black women's organizing and educating in the co-op and the leadership. Many black women started the mutual aid or the co-op and then keeping youth involved and finding ways for youth to be involved. That helps with the longevity of the co-op. That's interesting. Right here in D.C. is Nanny Helen Burroughs was very big in it. And I, I live right off Nanny Helen Burroughs Avenue, so it's uh, she was big. I learned that in your book, by the way. Um, yeah, she celebrated more for her role in education and religion and not in co-ops, but she also had a strong, she started a very important co-op in D.C. in the, in the 30s. So I, I also read in your book, or you told me on air, and then I read it, was at, at Bluefield State College where I, went to undergrad, there was a student, the bookstore was owned by the students, but then it said in your mm -hmm. book that it just sort of like went away. And I was wondering if they had got suffered from sabotage, either the power structure. It seems like the white whites in power don't want to see blacks or browns or natives get up and, and, and make it like Tulsa. They go and burn it down. Um, right. you have any sense of what's behind that? Well, I think it's a couple things. Now, the Bluefields example, I think I learned from Du Bois's book that the state shut down that co-op. So that is definitely part of what I would call white supremacist terrorism or violence. I don't have any details for why, but my, you know, but often in those cases, um, <laughs> governments didn't support something or shut something down. You know, we have that case with Callie House with the ex-slave pension program. They put her in jail for 
mail fraud. They did the same thing with Garvey. So often they step in and find, you know, a tiny little thing, right? <laughs> Either to make, they fabricate a problem or they find a tiny little problem, build it up, and then use that as a, as a reason for why, the re, you know, basically they revoked the charter, I think, for that co-op. So I don't know if it's because it was young people owning and running the co-op or, you know, we don't have those details anymore in history. But the, that level, right, so I, when I talk about sabotage, I mean from the very simple, you know, banks colluding not to give loans or lines of credit to a co-op business to um, white clan members and posses, you know, actually burning down a co-op building or lynching co-op members. And throughout history, that whole gamut, that whole range of sabotage has happened. Um, in addition to, right, government agencies being part of that, right, either shutting things down or not giving loans or not supporting the black part of the policy, that kind of thing. Why? I think the why is, again, because of this racist capitalist society that we're in, one, whites don't want the competition, right? If blacks withdraw from the mainstream system, then, you know, and say we're not going to be exploited anymore, we're not, we're not in this. We're going to do for ourselves, take care of ourselves and do a better job, right? That looks bad, right? The, the system, the white supremacist capitalist system loses cogs in the wheel. It loses labor. It loses consumers. And it, and it, and there's a, um, what do you call it? A model and an example that gets set for other groups that they too could, don't have to participate in the capitalist system. And they don't want that, right? It's a, it's a bad precedent. So they want to nip it in the bud. They don't want the precedent. They don't want people going out of the system. They don't want people finding other ways and showing that there's better and other ways to do stuff. And I'm sorry to be cynical, but I don't know any other way to explain it. Oh, I don't think it's cynical. I think it's right on. Renee, talk about it. Tell, tell us. No, no, I was just going to say, you know, following up on Jessica's point, it also loses legitimacy, right? So, I mean, I think that, it is ingrained in us in all different types of ways. We're socialized to think that capitalism is the only way in which we can live meaningful, free lives, right, in society. And I think, you know, to the extent that we see that these practices have happened, have been successful, have worked better, particularly for oppressed communities, I think that demonstration also, like, undermines right capitalism in some ways like it loses its legitimacy it, when people demonstrate that there's a better another way of organizing ourselves economically and politically and socially then it undermines the system that we're in that we no longer have to be oppressed we no longer have to be exploited we, we can actually see the fruits of our labor and basically um that you know, more or less we can structure a society and institutions in ways that actually serve people as opposed to serving a few people to, to become very wealthy, right? And so it undermines that whole logic of, I think, capitalism in a way. And I think that's in part, too, why we see so much sabotage throughout history of uh, black cooperatives. Do you think that's changed at all if, if we create capitalist, I mean, cooperatives today that we'll have enough power enough folks that we can not be subject to the state coming in and closing down the business or Ku Klux Klan members, whether they call themselves that or not, or changing laws so that the black owned, brown owned, native owned 
co-ops, perhaps run at the head by women, uh, can still survive and strive? Well, I definitely think a lot of that dynamic still exists. I think that we're in a different moment of of what the sabotage might look like. I think that, you know, that's in part why I think it's important to have co-op lawyers, particularly co-op lawyers who are steeped in communities that they're working with or, you know, come from the communities that they, they work with or um, oppress communities more broadly, in part because there are ways in which we can at least to the extent possible try to think ahead, try to protect what people are building, um, try to structure it in such a way that it doesn't necessarily lend itself to at least some forms of sabotage. But by and large, I mean, I think, I think too, you know, there are more folks who are questioning why things are the way that they are. The pandemic has done that. Definitely the recent protests have done that in terms of questioning all of our institutions. And so I think people are open. There's a moment of opportunity where we can um, really activate so many more people around cooperative development, around the solidarity economy, um, to, to realize that things can be done differently, that we can own the institutions, that we can um, basically make sure that they serve us in ways that are actually uh, aligned with our values and what, what we want to see in our communities. Um, but the sabotage is there, still there. The power dynamics are still there. And if anything, I think we've gotten better. Those of us who are in the cooperative movement, who are you know, uh, in the solidarity economy movement, I think we've also started to think about how do we continue to build? How do we continue to um, activate people? But also how do we start to think about shifting the political economy as we build these institutions, how do we come together in ways to actually leverage, you know, our power, our institutions, um, and what we believe in to to start changing society more broadly? I mean, you see that with people doing participatory budgeting projects. You see that with folks who, who have built up so many mutual aid organizations in the wake of the pandemic, when it was very clear that the government was not going to provide us with the things that we need or keep us safe. You know, people basically decided to keep each other safe, to, to build out the institutions that they need to make sure that people were fed or if you know, they were, um, their neighbor was vulnerable, that they went to the grocery store for them so that they had something to eat. And so we see those practices. I think, you know, we, we always have to be mindful of that. Those dynamics are absolutely still very real. Um, but also, I think we're in a different moment and I think we're much more mindful of that. And then the last thing I'll say, I think that's also why it's so important to think about decolonizing the co-op movement, in part because we have seen black cooperators have experienced this sabotage backlash for so long. We have experience with it. We need to learn from those experiences and carry that forward into the new institutions that we're building around cooperative development. That's yeah. a great place for us to stop. Let, let me get your response right after the break. And when we come back, Dr. Nimhart, I would like to get your, your response to that. But I'm also wanting to get what's the message of young folks that say that they won't vote. My answer, we got to get people out to vote. That's critical. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. 
This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. We've been on air this October. It makes it seven years we've been on air, and National Cooperative Bank has been our sponsor for those seven years. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related service. And these low-income communities are where we find a lot of black folk, brown people, native folk, all up and down Appalachian in the South, and NCB has been there providing financial services in the cooperative world. And before we took break, uh, Renee had talked to us about how today is perhaps different from yesterday in terms of sabotage, where races or white competitors would come in and sabotage the black or brown cooperative businesses. And Renee, you were getting ready, I mean, Jessica, you were getting ready to talk about that before we took break. So tell us your response to that. Yeah, I just wanted to add to the wonderful way that Renee explained all that, that in my opinion, for us to move forward, like to spread this economic democracy movement, right, the solidarity economy, the co-op movement, right, we really have to address this issue about racism and colonization of our ideas because, you know, I've been arguing, and actually I think this is the last thing I said in my keynote at the NCBA impact conference last week, or actually I think it was maybe two weeks ago now. I said, you know, I have been arguing, especially lately, that without economic democracy and economic justice, we're not going to achieve racial equity but we're also not going to achieve racial equity and justice if our economic democracy practices don't address racism and structural racism and achieve racial equity, right? So we've got it, right? If, if economic democracy, economic justice is going to be the solution, which we all, I mean, at least those of us on this call, and I think most of us agree, right, it's going to be the solution. So some kind of solidarity, cooperative, movement that takes over as much as possible of our political economy. But we've got to get our own house in order, right? So if our economic democracy institutions have to address the white privilege issues. We have to address the fact that they develop in from within, you know, that the, their modern existence was developed in a racist and colonizing situation, right? So we've got to get that in order. We can't just have everybody practicing their little economic democracy on the right. We've got to figure out how to really address the systemic racism that still happens inside our co-op movement even. You know, and we see it, you know, the, the food co-op movement has started to finally address that, but they had all kinds of racism embedded into their assumptions and the way they operated. And there were very few black food co-ops in the late 21st century, even though Black food co-ops are one of the most numerous kind of co-ops I found in my research, right? The rural electric movement, there, there's a group now that's trying to talk about racial equity in rural electric, you know. And so we need to figure out how to help, how to support, help, and demand that that kind of change happen even within our own co-op movement so that we can really get to real economic democracy and then use that real economic democracy to really achieve racial equity and racial justice. I totally agree with you, and I have, and I talked to a, a group um, oh, a month or two ago that I'm not 
naive, being being on this world for 73 years, growing up black in America in the South, that there would not be racism in co-ops. And if you go look at NCB, the wall of those heroes, and you go back and you look 10, 15 years ago, they were pretty much all white men. Uh, it, and most recently, you will find some blacks. And if there were women before, they were the wives of the man that was getting it. And so that was it. So racism really exists inside the co-op movement. It has been here. So how do we address this? You said there's some in the food co-ops you're beginning to, and there's a group in the rural electric co-op. But how do we get this? Do you have any answers, Renee? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to start having hard conversations and be really intentional about it. I mean, one of the things that Jessica and I did in the workshop for the NCBA conference uh, was really have people to think about, like, one, currently, what do you do? What kind of intentional practices do you have around anti-racism, around the ways in which race and uh, power shows up in your work? And so, you know, is it even that you're having conversations, which honestly some folks aren't, you know, more or less, I think we see a lot of all white or almost entirely white co-ops. And chances are, you know, it's not just a function of the people that live in their communities, but, you know, it's it's kind of more or less because they're not being intentional about who actually is included or who knows about the co-op or who feels welcome, um, who is it so relevant to, who actually gets to decide in terms of what uh, decisions are made or what they actually prioritize moving forward. Um, so, you know, are, is it more than, it, it definitely has to be more than conversations, right? Really try to take stock of what intentional practices you have on in every level of uh, your co-op or your organization that's providing technical assistance to co-ops. I mean, one of the things that I don't think we talk enough about is the way in which technical assistance happens in terms of cooperative development and the way in which it doesn't necessarily feel responsive or connected uh, to black co-ops, to Latinx co-ops, indigenous co-ops is not necessarily culturally relevant, doesn't necessarily uh, provide language access. And I think there's a lot of work to do just even around something as simple as technical assistance to cooperatives. But then more broadly than that, like, you, we, you know, this country does not do a good job of actually making us have honest and real conversations about race, period. And so once you get into a co-op, I mean, we bring all of that with us. We bring all of the ways in which we're socialized into the co-op. And at the same time, to have to engage in democratic practice at a different and a very deep level, it's impossible not to talk about these things. And you have to be intentional. And so I'm really getting folks to think about what kind of racial equity assessment do you have? How does power function in your organization? Who gets to make the decision? Um, who are you being, who are you trying to be accountable to or responsive to what community needs? And so while I think, I mean, I think the first real issue is that people have to make a commitment to feeling comfortable, to being honest, to really doing study um, about the history of race and racism in part, because we just don't, that doesn't exist. Uh, in part, you know, so so many folks would not have had to engage in, in spaces that really would uh, allow and require them to engage in that type of study. And then also in uh, really thinking about white privilege and how that functions on a structural level. So I just want to give a quick shout out to LaDonna Sanders Redmond, who works with Columinate. She started a group uh, called Abolitionist Challenge for six months reading six books. And so it was a study group 
Uh, and there were about 250 people that signed up for this study group, and they just finished the second month. I was one of those. I missed the last month. I got the first month I was in there. So that's more of that. And I find these conversations are difficult. Even for me, when you start talking about what biases do you have against women, Vernon, growing up in this sexist world, uh, when I grew up, it's like, well, what biases do you have and how do you get those biases out there on a the table and so you can address them? So we all have biases. Some are conscious and some are not are unconscious. So how do we get there? I really appreciate you raising that in part because I think it speaks to not the only way we have to transform our institutions. Right to really address these issues in terms of structural racism, but also the kind of interpersonal and personal transformation that we all have to do, having been socialized right in a racist and uh, a misogynist and uh, classist culture. Right, so it, it's not only at the institutional level; it's like the work that we all have to do personally and interpersonally. Yeah, absolutely. So where where do we send people besides just LaDonna's having this one? And how do, how do we get people to have these hard conversations? Because some of them are hard, particularly if they look inside, inside the, the business and inside the individual. Right. Well, you know, there are groups that help do anti-oppression training. There are groups that help people to learn and understand structural institutional racism. You know, so it's back to, you know, I think Renee already said it. There has to be very deliberate attention to this issue. I mean, the easiest thing is to start, again, with just some study circles, right? Talk to each other and um, and study together, right? Find a good book to read together or a good video to watch or something like that. You know, during this pandemic where we can't really do the stuff we used to do, right, is a great time to kind of pay attention to these things, right? We can do have video chats and video study sessions and phone study sessions if people don't have good access to Internet, right? There are ways that we could be using this time to be much more introspective, to do new kinds of training, to read up on stuff, to practice our own, uh, you know, ways to change our views on things. It's not a great thing to be in a pandemic, but if you've got to be in one, think about all the ways that we can use this time and this forced, uh, forced pause or whatever that we're in to, to really do more of the stuff that we keep saying needs to happen, right? Conversations, learning, group learning, and deliberate planning and strategy for how to deal with these things. And, you know, it's a great time to find the resources, even if you'd rather do it in person meetings. Maybe you don't have to do all the study together yet, but your group could be finding the people that will help you, you know, finding the people who are willing to go through this introspection. You can be writing up concept ideas for how your co-op can move more toward this, and right. So it's a great well, we, time. We, we got to go. I'm sorry, Jessica. <laughs> okay. There's so much that we can do. Everybody out there, please find a group. Please study. Please look, and get out and vote. That's where we get power. And we'll see you next week. Live cooperatively. 